Good evening. Can everyone hear okay? Okay. My name is Chris Clifford, and I've been practicing in the group here for about six or seven years. And um, this is my first talk. And I think it's traditional in our group for a first talk to be sort of the story of how we came to this practice, what Bruce was calling the other day the way-seeking talk. So that's what I'd like to talk about. Um, my personal story is actually a little short on plot, however. Um, no big crises and no wandering around Asia. But when I look back on my state of mind eight years ago or so, before I came to the Dharma, it's pretty clear that something pretty dramatic has happened. And so when I look back, I think um, that the first important piece of that was a shift in my understanding that actually happened right at the beginning, before I could even manage to sit. It was a long time before I actually sat down. Um, quite early in my Dharma reading days, I came across this passage from the Zen master Dogen. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the 10,000 things. So I've held this passage in mind for a long time as a sort of a koan, you know, that's one of these Zen stories that you have to live with for a long time to really figure out, to begin to understand what it means. And I know that this whole passage is good for several lifetimes of, of living with. Um, it's really just the first line that I want to focus on this evening. What does it mean to study the self? And how in the world does that lead to forgetting the self? Is it really possible that there's some way to study the self that leads to freedom instead of more suffering? At the time when I first encountered the Dharma, I would have thought that I'd been studying the self all my life, studying myself for sure. And the result so far, I would say, was really nothing but a great burden of self-consciousness and self-doubt. The incident that actually brought me to the Dharma was a kind of stressful job change back in 1994. My old company was doing layoffs and project cancellations, and I was offered a new job by some friends at a really intense computer startup company. So with some trepidation, I took the job. And the first few weeks of this job, I was just totally paralyzed by anxiety and self-doubt, which is really kind of what I'd always been through whenever I was in a situation where I felt like I had to start proving myself again. But actually this time, part of the problem was kind of the opposite because these were old friends. I felt like I had some kind of reputation to uphold. And I was sure that I was about to be exposed as the fake that I often felt myself to be in that business. So I sat there spinning on the questions that really kind of drove my life in those days. Basically, what's the matter with me and how can I either fix it or hide it? I always felt like I was sort of, like I was blindly groping to fix something that I could really only see by seeing it in the reflection of other people's eyes. I think in my life up to that point, my attempts to study the self tended to fall into three different ways of thinking. In one mode, I read psychology books and I worked out more and more precise descriptions of my neuroses and what was the theory of my childhood and so forth. And then there was a sort of fantasy mode where I tried to figure out what would make the real me happy. I wished I could believe in God, but I never could. Instead, I always believed in the perfect place. I would spend hours poring over maps of Montana, New Mexico, Oregon, 
I had not the slightest idea what I would do the day after I actually moved to one of those places. But I was convinced that if I found, you know, my little cabin, that that would be the answer to my life's problems. And ironically, at the same time, I had carried around in my journal this quote from the poet John Milton for many years. He says, The mind is its own place, and in itself can create a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same? So this, this sounds kind of Buddhist, but I always read it to myself with this tone of kind of romantic self-pity, you know, like, oh, poor me, still the same, still crazy after all these years. And as for actually studying the self, well, I thought I knew what that meant, and I'd actually spent a lot of time at it. I'd gone to graduate school in linguistics, the study of language, and I'd kept up an interest in the field of cognitive science as a sort of hobby. I even worked for a while in artificial intelligence. So I knew that just as physics is showing that the material world is ephemeral and uncertain, that any cognitive scientist would tell you that there's no place in the brain that is the self, and that the, that the self is just some kind of byproduct of information processing. But from the perspective of looking for meaning in life, this is pretty irrelevant at best. And I think I was beginning to be kind of depressed by it, because, you know, how can we humans have come this far and we have such elegant theories about so much and yet nothing seems to say anything about happiness? So I sat there at my desk day after day and I was thinking about how my life had come to that point. And I could look back and I could see how every time I had made a change in my life, I'd chosen a way that seemed relatively safe and dry. I'd chosen the way that seemed to lead me always more deeply into being absorbed in pure abstract thought about something. In school, I'd gone into the theory of language while sort of secretly loving poetry. After I dropped out of school, I considered a couple of teaching jobs, but then I wound up learning software engineering. And even this most recent job move was actually a move within the computer field from a job to a job that was really even drier and had less to do with human customers than the job I had left before. Now, as you might guess from what I've said so far, my idea of taking action in a crisis was head to the bookstore. So one day during this time, I came across the miracle day of my life, Joko Beck's book, Everyday Zen, on display. I think I read most of that book just standing there in Stacy's. And then I proceeded to read dozens of Dharma books over the next few weeks. The immediate effect of this first encounter with the Buddha's analysis of suffering was that it blew open all these different compartments and ways of thinking in my mind. It kind of gave them permission to start talking to each other and connecting the dots. So, yeah, science, let's say science has it right. The world, including our so-called selves, it really is radically unstable and impermanent. And yet every human being longs for permanence and control and lasting happiness. So this is clearly a recipe for universal suffering. And we can see that if we just look up from a few seconds from our own problems. This is the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. And really just hearing that stated so clearly, so plainly, it was kind of a, a kind of relief in itself to see that 
as if I hadn't realized this, but I really don't think I had, you know, that it's not just me. It's, there's something about our usual way of trying to make sense of experience that's really a setup for unhappiness. And according to the Buddha, the cause of suffering is that very longing for things to be different than the way they really are. That's the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is craving. And then the third noble truth is this amazing claim that even in the face of this seemingly airtight, double-bind contradiction, that the cessation of suffering is possible. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, the Roadmap to Liberation. Much as I have now come to love these four noble truths, I had actually read this bare list several times before in various you know, surveys of religion as being the essence of Buddhism. I think I first ran into them in high school. But their practical meaning for my life had really never been self-evident. And I don't think it's because I wasn't suffering enough. I think it's because I'd always engaged with them as philosophy, as propositions to think about. And really, I can see now that I was looking from what the Buddha would call the hindrance of skeptical doubt. For example, I would think, well, you know, I've never had the least bit of success in controlling my feelings, so how could I possibly just stop this craving? And if you could somehow learn to live with it all just the way it is, is the end of suffering really the same as happiness? Or is that just kind of some kind of nihilistic limbo? And it was awfully easy to hear that list of write this and write that and write the other through that, that strident voice in my mind that was always telling me what I had to do to fix myself. But fortunately, and very uncharacteristically for me, what I had found that day in the bookstore was not some voluminous history of religion, but it was a guide to the living dharma. And the essence of the living dharma is practice. These books didn't start out with the Four Noble Truths. They started out with stories and examples that were showing us how to reframe the way that we relate to our experience. And these stories really were all pointing to the practice of wise attention. My friend Andrea is really starting to know her way around the sutras, the writings of the Buddha, the discourses of the Buddha. And when she found out what I was going to talk about, she pointed me to the passage in the sutras where the Buddha actually defines wise attention. This passage describes very precisely the shift that we need to make in how we study ourselves so that it begins to lead toward freedom. I'd like to read some lines from that discourse. Just, It's fun to hear the, what the original words of the Buddha are on some subject. There's a little eliding things in here, but this is the flavor of that sutra. The Buddha says, An untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. This is how he attends unwisely. What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? What shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I become in the future? Or else he is inwardly perplexed about the present, thus, am I, am I not, what am I, how am I? 
the Buddha says that trying to answer these questions leads us into the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. Fettered by the fetter of views, the untaught ordinary person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is not freed from suffering, I say. And how does one attend wisely? The Buddha says, he attends wisely. This is suffering. He attends wisely. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Now, when I first read or hear a passage from the suttas, it sometimes takes quite a bit of reflection for me to see where the real heart of the instruction is in that passage. And I was thinking about this, and I decided that it lies in the fact that unwise attention is expressed in terms of questions as speculation and wondering, whereas wise attention is expressed as simple statements of what is. When that idea came to mind, I immediately recalled that I think there was a talk by my teacher, Carol Wilson, and I think she said something like this, that for her the two most important words in this passage are this and is. The Buddha is instructing us to shift our attention away from asking our favorite version of all that list of questions that he gave about ourselves. For me, that would be something like, what's wrong with me or what's the real me? He's directing our attention toward directly knowing our experience and deeply taking it in, not only with our minds, but with our hearts and bodies. The taste of a moment of suffering and the taste of a moment of release from suffering. And then having had these direct experiences of suffering or release, wise attention is extended to include reflecting on what conditions led to those moments. But here again, we're directed into the present time experience, not to our stories of our childhoods or something. This is the cause of suffering. In other words, what happened just now that actually gave rise in the present moment to the experience of suffering? This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Not some fantasy about how things could be, but what conditions appeared or disappeared just now that actually led to the release, the feeling of release. So I think this was really the great turning point in my life, toward my own direct experience, unmediated by notions of myself, toward the actual feeling of freedom and suffering. I found that this shift could make use of both the curiosity and investigative energy from my scientific side and the heartfelt desire for release from suffering that was really at the bottom of all my move to Montana fantasies. For someone like me with such a lifelong habit of introspection and worrying about myself, I think the only way I really could have begun was to make use of those habits but have them pointed in a more useful direction. So meanwhile, back at work. Sometimes, as I learned to read these books and started getting the idea, Sometimes, instead of sinking deeper into resentment about the fact that my job was demanding or hating myself for feeling anxious about it, I could start to investigate. I began trying to look at my thoughts instead of automatically just believing in the world as it appears through them. And I started to notice how much this unwise attention 
This habit of anxiously scanning experience, always looking for either a support or a threat to my own self-image, was actually at the heart of my suffering. This was pretty easy to start to see. At that time, I felt like I was kind of faking my way through a minefield of frustration and humiliation and resentment. These unpleasant moments became my mindfulness bells. I would wake up somewhere lost in emotional reaction to something, and I would remember my intention to look in a new way. In those days, a typical scenario at work would be something like someone would just refer to some kind of new computer concept, and then they would add something like, oh, as any fool would know. And I would immediately think, oh, God, I didn't know that. And my stomach would tense up and my neck would shrink up into my shoulders. And I'd be off into my usual spin on this, worrying that they might find out that I didn't know. And then I'd go off into the rest of my story, painting my colleagues as a bunch of, oh, those arrogant guys, and sharpening up the distinction in my mind between them and, you know, the real me. But if I could catch it, if even long after it had happened, I could look back on it and I could see, well, it was just a remark, you know, so maybe I learned something new. Or at worst, maybe I'd actually have to be, admit ignorance and be embarrassed. It's fascinating to really look at the experience of embarrassment. What is actually getting hurt there? It's perfectly clear that the actual pain we feel is just our own body's response to some perceived threat. But a threat to what? What is it that's going to be hurt in a moment of embarrassment? What is it that we are so afraid is going to be hurt that we hurt our own bodies to prevent it? It's really kind of mysterious. So just shifting my mind to see in this new way is a slow process, and it can take years to really start to turn around deep habits of thinking. So although I was beginning to see how these kind of self-referential thoughts and emotions would feed on each other, I was still mostly identifying with what I was starting to see. I would judge myself for not being able to just cut it out now that I could see it. Or I'd fall back into useless questions like, why do I do this to myself? Also, at least in the beginning, I think the practice actually strengthened the illusion of being in control because it did give me something constructive to do with my mind at least. But that tendency got a mild correction from an experience that hit a little deeper than the world of just a new way to think. Since these new ideas weren't actually a miracle cure and I really had to start getting some work done, I got a prescription for an antidepressant. Now, I'd somehow managed to get through the 60s and 70s without a lot of experience with psychoactive drugs. So this was a little bit of a new experience for me. A curious thing happened. I got the prescription filled on my lunch break, and I took the first half pill when I got back to work. And by the time I got back to my desk from the water cooler, this whole self-critical radio station in my mind was just switched off. And I was able to focus, and I just calmly turned to start getting some work done for the first time in two or three weeks. Now, I knew the pill really couldn't have worked that fast. But, you know, it was probably about here by <laughs> the time I got back to my desk. <laughs> but um, I knew that really the change in my mind that afternoon, it, it had more to do with the power of belief and hope. But still, this automatically arising mental state of hope had accomplished in seconds what I, all this trying to focus over weeks had not done. 
And I did take this drug for a few weeks. And during that time, I noticed lots of other subtle changes in aspects of my thoughts and my moods, sexuality, dreams, all kinds of things. Either way, really, whether it was altered brain chemistry or whether it was the mysterious placebo effect, my new understanding from the Dharma kept me from getting unwisely preoccupied with questions like, oh, which is the real me? Gee, who am I? You know. Instead, I could see that it was actually a fascinating direct experience of what I was reading in the Dharma books. Our thoughts and feelings and personalities and even that flavor of that subjective sense of me, they all depend on complex webs of conditions, on interactions between the mind and the body and the environment. So I would say that a small crack had opened up in my total identification with the functioning of my mind and my conviction that I ought to be able to control how well it worked. So some combination of the antidepressant and beginning to pay attention in this new way pretty soon got me over this crisis of confidence at my new job. And soon enough, I was all caught up in the intense workaholic environment. I did actually try now and then to really actually sit down and meditate, but I was so restless and I had so much tension in my body that I just couldn't stick with it. I would just sort of bounce on and off the cushion, you know, sometimes in the morning, like, oh, good idea, oh, got to go. And I, I just never, you know... Couldn't do that. My mind was working at computer speed for long hours, and then I would plunge into either reading or watching movies for escape. I came across a great phrase recently, frisking a book. (laughs) So I think at that time my practice was slowly degenerating into picturing myself meditating in Montana and frisking a lot of Dharma books. But the reality of impermanence once again came to the rescue. One day, a couple of years after this job change, my boyfriend of several years suddenly ended our relationship. In the days right after this happened, I didn't know if I was really glad or angry or sorry. But fortunately, thanks to enough remaining understanding from this reading that I had been doing, of how to work with ideas of my real self and my true feelings, I didn't get too hung up on trying to figure out, you know, what what was the real me again. Wise attention really got me through this time. There was nothing to do except just notice how all these mixed emotions kept rolling through my body. I got quite interested in noticing what sort of image or thought or memory would trigger sadness, anger, loneliness, or relief, and what each one felt like in my body. Whenever I would sink into self-pity about the future or injured pride about the circumstances of the breakup, it was pretty clear that it just prolonged the states of sadness or anger. It was amazing to see how quickly each emotion would blow over if I just let it roll through and I didn't feed it with stories and memories. And after a while, the dominant feeling was one of freedom. The feeling that now I finally had some time to devote myself to whatever I wanted to do. And I knew with absolute certainty that what I wanted to do was get serious about practicing meditation. I knew that I had to find a way to slow down. Even a few moments of really feeling my feelings had given me a taste of something that I don't think I could have articulated, but I knew I had to find more of it. So looking at my life from the point of view of the Eightfold Path at that moment, I would say that I was beginning to get at least my philosophical understanding aligned with right view through reading and observing myself in daily life. And now I was feeling a new burst of energy behind the right intention to practice. 
And I decided that for me at that point in my life, that the best way to work with the next three factors, which are right action, right speech, and right livelihood, was basically to sit down, shut up, and get away from the computer for a while. So I discovered Spirit Rock was right up the road, and I signed up for a weekend retreat. That first weekend was a revelation. I certainly don't mean any kind of exotic experience, but just for the first time understanding how deeply I needed to take some time to be with my own ordinary experience. I think it started to shift the polarity of my motivation for practice from entirely being pushed forward by suffering to beginning to be pulled forward by some glimpses of joy and happiness and peace of mind. Over the next couple of years, I went to several short retreats, and I also started sitting regularly with this group. I'd like to talk now about some of the fruits of this slowing down that I discovered, even in the first couple of years of really doing some practice. I was only sitting two or three times a week with the group and going on a couple weekend retreats and maybe a 10-day retreat every year. I still wasn't having, able to have a daily meditation practice. The first fruit was beginning to get out of the mind and into the body. I felt like I was coming out of a 45-year out-of-body experience. I'm sure that all of you have discovered that one of the first challenges of meditation is learning to work with um, some level of pain or discomfort in the sitting posture. And like many people, I discovered that working with this was the first thing that really started to deepen my practice. It was the first way that I could really start to appreciate the difference between a concept like pain and the actual feeling of the little, tiny, ever-changing sensations in the body. It was also the first place that I could clearly feel the difference in the body between the unpleasantness of the sitting posture sensations and the extra added tension of aversion and resistance. And I could also begin to see how identifying with the body as me or my back or my ankles, to name my favorite parts, was making things worse. During one particularly difficult sitting, I was so desperate that I pretended that my body had been given over to science and was some kind of remote display screen for this robot that was exploring the surface of Mars. And all the sensations that I was feeling were just a way of displaying the surface of Mars. So I was paying minute attention to them, you know, oh, volcanoes, lava flows, mountain ridges. The interesting point was that it definitely hurt less when it wasn't me. Luckily, this made me more curious to see if I could just let it be not me somehow without the crutch of this fantasy rather than getting hooked on yet another fantasy, like my little cabin on Mars or something. Um, and then, of course, all my old concerns and still present-day concerns with self-image and comparing myself with others, they sprung up in a ridiculous obsession with whether to sit on a cushion or sit on the, in a chair. I remember my first week-long retreat. I went to Gill a few days into it, tearfully asking permission to move to a chair, as if I didn't notice that half the retreat was sitting in a chair, that people were freely moving back and forth between the chair and the floor whenever they felt like. For a long time, I would measure the success of a retreat by how long I could hold out on the floor. This seems so ridiculous to me now, but I also feel a lot of compassion for myself as I was in those days. I know how much I knew even then how much I needed to relax, but until I began to get a real taste of it through doing things my own way, 
I was sort of enslaved to techniques or authority figures, just trying to find a way into this practice, trying to find out how it would work. It's a paradox, or maybe it's a shortcoming of the English language, that the more we lose our self-consciousness, the more self-confident we become. Most of the negative self-words, like self-conscious, self-concerned, self-centered, those have to do with excessively remembering ourselves. Whereas the positive states, like self-confident, self-reliant, self-assured, they arise as we begin to forget ourselves. It's really the difference between clinging to an image of ourselves and learning to trust our direct perceptions of reality. So besides these painful aspects of sitting, the hours of walking meditation and trying to be mindful in all activities have been really valuable in loosening the identification with compulsive thinking that maintains our focus on ourselves. The rhythm of these retreats finally began to soak into my body. I remember after the first week-long retreat, I came home and after eating dinner that first night, my body just knew that now it was walking time. So I just let it lead me out into the driveway in the pouring rain and I just slowly walked back and forth for a while. I was kind of wondering as usual what the neighbors would think. But for once, I was really beginning to listen to the wisdom of my body instead of being a slave to my self-image. Another very helpful practice that I've taken from retreat into daily life is the practice of doing simple tasks slowly. Putting my attention directly into the feeling of movements and appreciating the texture and the details and the taste of whatever I'm looking at or touching. One instruction on retreat one time was not to do anything so fast that you feel rushed. Someone was asking, well, how slow is slow enough, you know, and that was the answer. I discovered that the body has an intuitive sense of what the natural speed for doing something is so that my attention can stay in sync with what my body is doing. And now whenever I notice that I'm rushing around and whenever I think of this, even just slowing down, extending my arm to pick up the phone at work, it has the magical ability to pull my mind out of self-concern and realign my perceptions with reality. Another joy of slowing down that carries over into daily life was being able to open the boundaries of myself a little bit to be touched by the changing rhythms of the natural world. Just being outdoors walking in the same spot every other hour, all day from before sunrise until after sunset, watching the sun move across the sky, feeling the air on my skin turn from cold and damp to warm to hot to back to cool again, and then the same thing the next day, but never exactly the same. The feeling of a connection with the cycles of nature and the flow of time and the understanding of constant change has given me a lot more patience and equanimity with changes in my own life. As I make my way through middle age, going through so many forced changes to self-image, I am so grateful to have the wisdom of the Dharma and the natural world to navigate by, rather than being stuck with the values and examples of our deluded culture. A third benefit of slowing down and doing some extended practice was that I could begin to see how the last three factors of the Eightfold Path, which are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, I began to see how they work together. I have never to this day had much luck at sitting down and sticking with the breath. So it was really another revelation to see that concentration can develop naturally out of trying to maintain a continuity of mindfulness in all activities. 
I discovered the power of just starting over every day, every hour. Wherever you wake up, in the middle of a breath, halfway up a flight of stairs, mouthful of food, in the middle of a fantasy of Montana or Mars, you just come back to exactly what's happening again and again, as best you can. And this kind of momentary concentration, it's called, is actually what we need to begin to see through the mask of self into the origins of suffering. As long as we're seeing the world through the filter of our mental concepts, we're really missing the real texture of the moments of our lives. And we really don't know, we just can't guess, how much joy and contentment and peace of mind is available just from awareness itself when we can begin to let go. In my reflections in daily life, I was pretty motivated to look at how I was reacting to unpleasant events. But I very seldom took a close look at my response to the other two categories of experience, at attachment to pleasant circumstances or the need to constantly escape into entertainment from a neutral moment. And since I'm basically a healthy, reasonably prosperous American, it's really these two reactions that run my life. It was easy enough to see, of course, by looking back over my life that nothing I had previously ate or bought or entertained myself with was of any use as a lasting cause of happiness. But it was much more difficult to begin to verify the Buddha's assertion that when we compulsively act on these impulses, we're actually causing suffering. So there are two ways that beginning to develop a little bit of this momentary concentration helps us to see this. One is by actually seeing the pain of grasping, and the other is by learning to appreciate the more subtle happiness of peace of mind. A common experience on this long retreat at the Insight Meditation Society that several of us have been to is the so-called pizza insight. They serve really delicious, healthy meals every day, but every couple of weeks they have pizza. The first few times, this is such a treat, you just eat it right up, and if you're lucky, you notice yourself going back to seconds. But after a while, the mind really settles down, starts to get used to a quieter level of contentment with just being present. It's a really eye-opening moment for lots of people. The day you first see pizza on the menu, and the next thing you notice is this unpleasant feeling of tension rising in the chest. This little, ah. and, and this little whispering thought in your mind, oh no, here we go again. You know, I'd almost rather have tofu. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Almost. <laughs> um, so directly seeing how grasping can make a pleasant experience so unpleasant that we would almost rather not have it. Of course, the point is not to forego the pleasure, but to drop the grasping. And after four years of sitting this retreat, I can usually now, I can just enjoy the pizza when they have it. But on the rare occasions when they have Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> and this retreat includes Thanksgiving dinner every year. So, you know, these things are lost causes. Just let greed rip. <laughs> so I've talked a lot about my experiences on retreat in this talk. And if this encourages any of you to try it, I would say definitely go for it. You might think that, you know, maybe some of you are having trouble establishing a daily sitting practice, and you might think, well, how could I, you know, possibly dare go to a retreat? But for me, it was the other way around. I could not sit at home, and I could sit on retreat. So what I'm saying is do whatever it takes, you know, because this practice is worth it. So, you know, keep trying to find a way in for yourself. 
I can't tell you how grateful I am for the radical simplicity of those times. With nothing going on for days but whatever I was doing to myself, there was finally enough time to really let it sink in that the roots of both suffering and joy are in what's happening in our own minds in the present moment. But everyone's path is different, and many people can learn to see this in a daily sitting practice or just by bringing wise attention to our daily lives. In Joseph Goldstein's new book, One Dharma, he writes, There is a certain mystery to the process of finding one's path. Although when we look back at our own spiritual journey, it often seems as if there were an underlying order all along. We simply need to trust the integrity of our seeking. Everything follows from that. A friend of mine just got back from a sailing race from San Francisco to Hawaii. The great thing about this course is that it's downwind all the way. So they have these special boats with huge spinnaker sails, and they just blast across the Pacific. And as they get close to Hawaii, these big boats actually surf on the waves sometimes. So I was thinking about that. There are often a lot of really common, often used metaphors for practice. And when we're facing a lifetime of habits of grasping and aversion, it really is uphill. And when we're trying to navigate the flood of anti-wisdom pouring out of our culture, it definitely is really upstream. But at the deepest level, what we're trying to do is align ourselves with the way things really are. And at that fundamental level, it really is downwind all the way. I'd like to close by sharing a little one-line saying from the Ojibwe Native American people. This is my favorite little mantra for pulling myself out whenever I'm lost in the swamp of self-concern. I go about pitying myself while great winds carry me across the sky. I go about pitying myself while great winds carry me across the sky. Thank you. Good night. (laughs) Thank you.